Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, March the 9th, 2022, and I am over it because it is National Get Over It Day. So happy get over it to whatever you need to get over to all of you people who are out there in our listening audience. Um, I am here to bring you the news with a special guest host. So you know I'm Tom Hollingsworth, the host of The Rundown, uh, your friendly network analyst. But today I am joined by one of my good friends, Mr. Calvin Hendricks-Barker. Calvin, welcome to The Rundown. I am super excited to be here. Thanks, Tom, for having me. Oh, no problem. Uh, Stephen Foskett, of course, is out doing storage field day this week. So we are um, anxiously awaiting some of the great news that is coming from that event. But speaking of news, we have some great news stories that we'd like to bring to you this week. Calvin, would you like to start us off? Absolutely. I'll kick this off. So, Tom, Mobile World Congress was last week in Barcelona, and one of the big news items out of this event was the announcement that Verizon Business is going to start offering a private 5G service by partnering with Solona. As seen in Mobility Feed Day, Solona has technology that provides private connectivity using CBRS, so Verizon will offer fully managed solutions as well as a DIY setup that is configured and managed by the customer. The offering is designed to implement Verizon's existing infrastructure in areas like stadiums or hospitals. Tom, what do you make of this partnership? So I think this is a very good thing for the folks at Solona. If you've seen any of the coverage that we've given them at Mobility Field Day, you'll know that that CBRS, first of all, is not the uh, the CB radio that you got in the 70s with Convoy and with uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Instead, it's actually kind of a superset of that frequency band that has been opened up for what I would consider to be lightly licensed uh, mobile usage. So there are obviously a bunch of players that are there that are going to kind of stay there. But for these smaller deployments, if you will, like think, and I say smaller, think stadium sized instead of county sized. Yeah. Um, what you're going to get is the ability for you to have um, a, a different frequency spectrum that does things like penetrates walls better, has a slightly larger cover er coverage area. But instead of having to deal with a lot of the open RAN technology and some of the, the non very specialized things, it almost feels like a Wi-Fi network. I mean, the, like, for example, the eNode B in a, in a uh, CBRS network, you're like, what, what's that? Just think access point. So where's the value coming from the customer base? Okay, so let's say you have Verizon business that wants to come in and, and do this. Well, they're going to try to bring in their equipment. And even with 5G, which is, you know, again, going back to OpenRAN, running all of their technology on top of more, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, something a little bit more commodity. This is a much different deployment model. And of course, Verizon is going to give you two different models. You can pay us to do everything or... You can do it yourself and we'll come in when things break, which is kind of what the Solona model is now. I'm big on the Solona technology and I think that they have a lot of capability. I just think that partnering with a company like Verizon to kind of get that out there for companies that need a little bit more than just a couple of cell phones, but not enough to park a tower in your backyard is a great way to kind of bring people in. And given the growth of private 5G from a lot of the other big players, Intel, uh, Cisco, uh, HPE, Aruba, I think that Solona is very well positioned now on the carrier side of the space to kind of compete with those companies. Whereas if you'd have asked me of last month, how is Solona going to compete now that we're seeing Cisco and HPE, Aruba come out with these 
solutions, my honest advice would have been, well, they need to get bought by somebody. I'm not saying that that's happening here. I'm saying that now they have kind of a level playing field and a partner that has their back. Yeah. The interesting bit here also seemed to be the end-to-end 5G into the public 5G network as well. Sounds like you could just outfit your office with these private 5G networks and not worry about infrastructure, like wiring for your laptops, desktops, mobile workers, people coming and going. Yeah. Uh, Calvin, I don't know if you heard this or not, but it's patch time. Again. I did hear this. <laughs> um, the new Linux kernel vulnerability has been found that has the potential to cause some serious headaches. Known as Dirty Pipe, uh, this bug is found in kernel versions 5.8 and later. Um, the vulnerability allows a user to gain root level privileges on a system through some known existing bugs. Um, but this could allow the attacker to overwrite read only files. Hmm, why would that be important? I don't know. What if I suddenly blanked root's password in the, pats- the password file? Um, the bug was disclosed to researchers back on February the 20th in a hush-hush manner, which allowed them to get a bunch of patches out ready to go for the public disclosure of the vulnerability. But everybody updates their kernel all the time, right? Nobody's ever running old versions of their kernel. Yeah. Uh, okay. So people are going to have to go patch. Now, Calvin... Being someone who deals on the system side of things, how big of a headache is it if a user can gain privileged access with a trivial exploit? I mean, obviously, it's a huge headache, um, but it's interesting times we're in now. I think a lot of the way we're seeing application development and deployment of applications onto uh, systems is happening more and more with containers. So I don't feel like this is as big an issue for folks who are kind of following best practices, working in the modern way of deploying applications, because they're just going to either rebuild their containers, which shouldn't have shells on them anyway. I think what we've seen with these last uh, round, so over the last 12 months, there's been what four or five major Linux vulnerabilities, but all of them have been local account only. So you, these are not remotely exploitable. They have to basically have people who have accounts on these machines who can now trivially uh, have gain, give themselves root access, cover their tracks by writing or read-only files. So it's definitely a very nasty bug. But I think for folks who are running systems where there's limited access to these machines, there shouldn't be these giant shell machines we used to have in the old days where giant one shared server, everybody got access to it. I, I think a big issue they pointed to was the fact that maybe universities still have sh- shared shell accounts or some providers like hosting providers may still provide shared hosting accounts where the, you have a shared shell. Those are 100% vulnerable and probably the least likely to be up to date, unfortunately, uh, given the speed that some of those places update. I mean, if they're on, if they're using those old practices, it's pretty likely they're not updating their kernel as much as they should be. Uh, luckily, there's great tools for getting your, your systems up to date and keeping things up to date, but I'm not going to worry about it too much. Uh, we are going to be deploying with containers. We're not putting in shells in those containers anyway. Uh, I want developers and operations folks not to have to you know, get on a command line to a remote system anymore uh, than they have to, if, if ever, and actually make it not possible. Uh, that works around this last slew of the dirty cow, dirty pipe, the iSCSI vulnerability. And it, what's interesting with this specific bug about dirty pipe, it was a two-line code fix that fixed it. Uh, a good code review would have caught this. It has been, this bug has been in there since uh, early 20 or mid 2020. Some of those other bugs were in there for 15 years uh, undetected. The kernel is just a, a hard, complicated area 
to work in. So simple, simple things can be overlooked like this. And that that's why this is happening. But I think if people can actually adopt more best practices, leverage containers, Kubernetes, orchestration, don't make this your issue. Um, make the deployment of your applications be be some you know someone else's problem. Make the the maintenance of these bigger systems the provider you know, the, your hyper hyperscalers problem. Uh, make sure they they they're obviously in the business of keeping their systems secure. Leverage those um, shared responsibility. Uh, areas where between you and your cloud provider, your hyperscaler uh, provider, they're the ones that need to be on top of this. All right, Tom, Google is picking up some big security assets this week with the announcement that they would be acquiring Mandiant. The deal is going to cost Google $23 a share or around $5.4 billion. This is one of their largest acquisitions ever. Uh, Mandiant was formerly part of FireEye, but was divested last year as a way to position the firm as more of a threat intelligence and response company. FireEye merged with McAfee Enterprise back in October and changed their name to Telerix. Mendiant continued along the publicly traded company until Tuesday, and Microsoft had been in talks to acquire the firm, but walked away in February. The deal is expected to increase the security behind the Google Google Cloud and directly compete with Microsoft Azure. Tom, how does this look for the outsider that needs a secure cloud offering? Well, it first of all puts Google Cloud back into the conversation. And I think it's funny that you know a lot of people kind of have their own reasons for picking cloud development environments. We pick AWS because it was the first one on the list. Uh, we pick Azure because we have a Microsoft um, enterprise license agreement. Uh, we pick Google Cloud because you know we're we're really cool developer people. We pick Oracle because the CEO saw an ad in the airport and Larry Ellison took him out on a super yacht or something. Why do people pick Oracle Cloud? I still haven't figured this out yet. Um, And based on their numbers, nobody else picks Oracle Cloud either. And there's my Larry Ellison joke for the month. Uh, No, it's um, this in a way, knowing that Microsoft wanted to pick up Mandy and it kind of almost feels like a defensive acquisition. Like, Like you wouldn't expect to hear the words defensive acquisition and Google in the same sentence. But obviously, Google Cloud needs a little bit more to get over the hump. I mean, let's be fair, they're they're safely in third place at this point. If you don't count like like Alibaba and and all the other, you know, large environments that are kind of very focused on uh, other regions. But when you think about it, they they have to differentiate themselves somehow. And, And I think that maybe offering more advanced security more capability around threat detection and stuff like that is is a way to do it. And obviously in this world today, if you don't have that capability already, you really should be buying it. And as you mentioned in the in the story, this is the second largest acquisition in Google's history. The first being Motorola Mobility, which they bought for like $20 billion. That paid off well for them, if, if we can be completely honest, considering of all of the, the mobile things that we talk about with Google now. This one is going to be much less flashy than that. And I think that that's going to be a problem for Google, uh, one, because you can't run ads against a security platform. But two, it gives a much more subtle way to increase the, uh, I don't know, Google Cloud spend, if you will, because I can guarantee you that this is going to be like a you know security plus kind of um, add-on feature that you get from them. It's like, oh, well, you know, you can do the baseline Google Cloud stuff, but if you really want to have access to threat intelligence and east-west traffic uh, mitigation, that kind of stuff, you really need to buy, I don't know, like Google Lock or whatever they're going to end up calling it, um, because they won't call it Mandiant. 
uh, even though Mandiant has a lot of um, cred in the industry. And you know this because when FireEye divested the assets that would later become this company, they went back to using the Mandiant name. Um, and, and of the two companies, FireEye is the one that ended up changing their name, which should tell you kind of where the value was. And, and as a reminder, FireEye Mandiant is the company that discovered the SolarWinds vulnerability at the end of 2020. So they're not just a flash in the pan. They know what they're doing. So Google is buying a great company. I'm just worried about the direction they're going to take to get it involved in what they're doing. All right, um, Calvin, uh, are you big on industry consortiums? Are they kind of a thing that are they're exciting to you? Totally exciting. Well, I guess, can't wait to talk more about them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you're thrilled to hear that there's going to be a brand new industry consortium that's been founded um, that changes some ways that chips interconnect. The Universal Chiplet Interconnect Express Standard, also called UCIE, um, was donated to this foundation by our friends over at Intel. And the idea is that they're going to create a standard way for chiplets to communicate with each other. Now, if you're not familiar with the term chiplet, don't get worried because it's something that's relatively new. Because what it allows you to do is take the way that a processor architecture is built and change the way that the chips are integrated onto it. So instead of it being one big monolithic block that includes the CPU, the memory controller, and the I.O. bus, they're going to allow older generations of, say, the memory controller and the I.O. bus to work with a new version of the chip. So the idea is that it's going to be able to do much quicker development because you're not having to certify the entire package to work together. And it's also going to reduce costs, supposedly, because you can continue to use a memory controller architecture for a lot longer instead of having to rev it every time you rev your chips. Now, the new consortium does include several of the industry heavyweights that you would expect to be there, including AMD, Intel, um, the company formerly known as Facebook, which we now call Meta, uh, Qualcomm, and Samsung. But notice who I didn't read off on that list, and that would be our good friends over at NVIDIA, even mm -hmm. though NVIDIA is reportedly looking at using chiplets for their GPU architecture. Hmm. Calvin, is having a new standard chiplet interconnect architecture something that's going to be a big deal for the CPU space? I think this is absolutely a big deal. And I think you can look at yesterday's announcement from Apple Computer on the M1 Ultra. Uh, there was a funny connector we all saw on the M1 Max, uh, M1 Pro processors that turns out is a nice way to interconnect two of them together and get a nice, fancy, doubly powerful processor. This is an awesome, I, I really am actually kind of excited about what seems like kind of mundane consortium type news here, because it is going to allow folks to use, like you said, technology that has been pre-existing, not have to rev a whole new motherboard, uh, provide better ways for people to compose pieces on these systems on a chip, which is really where we're going. Uh, I don't, I think the age of the general purpose CPU is probably done. Uh, we're seeing a lot more need for uh, machine learning uh, inference on those chips or even training models, being able to provide GPU cores alongside, you know, specialized um, hardware for encoding or doing special type of operations. You'll now be able to sell a, a, a system. If you saw the, the Mac Ultra, uh, the uh, new chip that's going to be in the Mac Studio, that's a video production powerhouse in basically a Mac mini case that rivals the Mac Pro from uh, that's currently being sold by Apple. Uh, I know I'm mentioning Apple here and they're obviously absent from this specific deal, 
but the others that are mentioned here are actually ARM is one of the ones that's in this deal. And obviously the Ultra is based on the ARM chip in architecture. So I have a feeling you're going to see interesting combinations between strange bedfellows uh, as you see an, an Intel with an AMD graphics uh, GPU you know, patched onto the side of it or combining kind of best of breed here. It is a little surprising to see NVIDIA absent here, given that they are going down this route. Um, we'll see what the competition uh, brings, but I have a feeling this is a good thing for the industry in that we can now have cross competitor compatibility and be able to plug and play and build custom chips for doing solving interesting problems that aren't being solved right now through general purpose CPUs. Okay, Tom, who loves hacks? This time we're talking about the Lapsus crew followed up their NVIDIA hack with a new victim this week. Samsung announced they have been hacked shortly after a 190 gigabyte torrent file was discovered that contains a lot of embarrassing confidential information. And who doesn't love embarrassing confidential information uh, from the electronics giant? Uh, Lapsus says they have the code for the biometric unlock algorithms, the bootloader source code, and even some files from Qualcomm. The crew hasn't made any demands yet, as they did for the NVIDIA hack. Tom, are they on a roll? Well, they're two for two. So um, mad props to the Lapsus crew out of where I believe is Brazil. Is that where we're attributing them to now? Um, which is weird, because normally you would expect these kinds of things to be coming out of certain countries over in the eastern part of Europe. But um, here's the interesting thing that I thought about with this story. So uh, we talked about the NVIDIA hack last week. Um, and it was kind of funny that uh, that Lapsus comes out and they are they're crusaders. We we want NVIDIA to release a fully open source, non-binary driver for the Linux kernel and and this and this and this. And then they dump Samsung's files onto the Internet with no ransom demands. Surprise, you're screwed. We don't care anymore. That is weird. Because now they're not crusaders anymore. They're just, well, I hate to use the word thugs maybe thug dollar sign. Yeah, that works a lot better. Thug dollar sign. Uh, no, uh, here's the thing. And this, this is the problem that you run into. Um, think about it like this. <clears throat> think about any of the other hacks that you've seen from like these small groups, um, especially this, the disorganized ones that uh, in the Eastern European countries. Uh, think about it like this. You break into a bank vault. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to grab anything you see laying around. You're going to shovel $100 bills into sacks and you're going to sort it all out later to figure out what you stole, right? That That's pretty part and parcel of Bank Robbery 101. Disclaimer, do not rob banks and do not take my advice for robbing banks. I am not a professional bank robber. Ask your local professional bank robber and don't do that either. That being said, they got two batches of source code. These are not run-of-the-mill bank robbers. These are people who are looking for something very specific. So to extend our analogy, these would be the people who walk into a bank vault, completely ignore all the cash that's laying out on the tables and start yanking safe deposit boxes out of the wall, looking for something very specific because you keep the good stuff in safe deposit boxes, right? So I think that what we're starting to see is that groups like Lapsus are looking for very specific stuff. And when you consider the code that they got, it's very confidential stuff, biometric unlock algorithms, secret agreements between Qualcomm and Samsung, confidential code access that, that you don't want to get out there and be public. And you hacked a company that builds on an open source platform. So your open source crusader argument just kind of goes out the window. So you're like, you know what? We're just going to dump it all. 
And, and I don't know what this means because who's the next company that's going to get it? By the way, uh, listening to the Packet Pushers um, uh, weekly news show this this uh, this past week, uh, Greg Farrell brought up a really interesting point. Um, the NVIDIA hack was done through the MDM system. So they were able to get one of these uh, VMs installed in their MDM system and kind of um, you know basically masquerading as a device on the network so that they could go footprint and recon the whole thing. I'm not sure if that's what happened in the Samsung situation, but it also is the reason why you probably saw stories that NVIDIA hacked them back. Uh, spoiler alert, they just uh, encrypted the, v- the VM in their MDM solution, <laughs> which is kind of amusing. But more importantly, this means that you're going to have to be on the lookout for your own attack vectors. And more importantly, from a security perspective, you need to put an additional layer of protection in front of your source code repositories. Um, yes, it's very it's very good for your developers to be able to get to them easily. But that also means that people who are not developers can get to them easily if you don't trust them. And I, at this point, given how effective this crew has been, I wouldn't trust anybody. I wouldn't either. Actually, does it bring up a boon for the uh, zero trust initiatives that we're seeing out there? I, I didn't want to say the Z word, but yes, um, zero trust is, is probably the way we're going to have to go. Simply because if you don't trust anybody, you don't have to worry about everybody. All right, um, we had a story that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this in now. As as a reminder, there is a lot going on in the world right now in Eastern Europe. Um, the world is very much focused on the situation between Ukraine and Russia, and so it's kind of hard to keep up with the pace of news that's coming out. This is one of the very first conflicts that we've ever had in the information age, and uh, Twitter is basically our news source for a lot of this stuff. One thing that has stood out on the technology side of the house is the number of tech companies that have severed business ties with Russia as a form of dissent or punishment for their actions on the world stage. The short list as of today includes VMware, Cisco, Apple, Microsoft, Veeam, and a lot of other smaller companies that have just said that they will no longer be taking on new customers and no longer being doing business with anyone in Russia. And that's just the people in tech. When you look at the wider group of companies out there, Volkswagen, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, they're all pulling their business. Now, this also comes on the heels of reports that Russia is supposedly looking to disconnect themselves from the global internet. They want to remove any capability for their internet services to be outside of the country And you may think to yourself, well, that's a dumb idea, except Russia's actually been using um, internal DNS and internal TLS certificate authentication for a number of years in the event that they ever had to pull themselves off the internet. It's almost like they were planning this or something. Calvin, we all have strong opinions on what's going on in this part of the world. What do you think about the technology angle here with all of these companies publicly announcing that they are no longer going to be doing business with customers in Russia. I'm excited that these technology companies have announced so quickly and swiftly that they're jumping on board. I think a lot of times the tendency for a large enterprise, when you're talking about Cisco, Apple, Microsoft, is to wait and see or to be conservative in their political stances. And a good friend of mine on Twitter always says that, uh, Tech, tech Twitter is is definitely not apolitical. Uh, there's nothing apolitical about tech. And I think it's the right stand for them to take to get on board with saying we're not going to deal with uh, a tyrant like this. Uh, it is interesting they're going to try and isolate themselves. Are we, are we just looking at another North Korea situation? Uh, unfortunately, 
it's worse because they are actively pursuing other areas of the world where, I mean, hopefully North Korea is not yet, but they've been pretty uh, quiet on that front and mostly harmless, uh, as some authors would say. So I don't know. I, Tom, what do you think on this one? I, I'm, I'm excited, especially that Cisco just announced, that was a, a, one of the more recent ones this week, that they are removing all support. Uh, I feel for the employees who are there on site. Uh, is my I guess that's the one area where I'm like, what what are they doing for those people? They are obviously part of their company, but it is providing pressure on the government to do something, to change something, hopefully over there. So obviously, this is a very fluid situation. And yes, I am glad that companies have come out and publicly stated that they are not going to do business with people in Russia anymore. And again, I feel for the employees of those companies. The Russians have, the Russian people have been kind of caught in the middle of all of this. However, I'm going to ask a very cynical question. Are these companies pulling out of Russia because it's the right thing to do? Or are they publicly getting behind the value of the movement knowing that there's no way they could have done business in Russia from this point forward anyway. Because Russia's been disconnected from the global payment system. They can't use SWIFT anymore. Their banks are completely frozen. All of their offshore cash reserves are absolutely locked down. That's like going to a restaurant, seeing a sign on the door that says closed, and then publicly announcing to everybody on the sidewalk, well, I didn't want to eat here anyway. I'm not saying that the moves were not good. They were. So hats off to all of the people involved in the decision-making process. And quite honestly, when you look at the blog post, except for a couple of little tone-deaf parts where they were trying to like push some marketing, um, they're by and large saying all of the right things. However, it's a lot easier to say the right things when there's no chance that you could have done this anyway. And, and it sounds crappy, but when you look at the other side of the fence, where you look at like Twitter and Facebook, and Facebook especially, who was like, well, we're not going to pull out. I mean, we we don't think that we should have to do that. But you're already halfway blocked there anyway. I like I, I get the feeling that that this is just kind of coming down to the fact that, well, we can score brownie points with people. And, and it's a horribly cynical take to, to, to have. But it's also something that's been borne out over years and years. I mean... Yeah, it's easy to say you're not going to do business with, I don't know, like North Korea, because how are you going to do business with North Korea? Like, like that's the deal. Like, it's easy to say you're not going to support somebody who you can't get money out of anyway. And, and I just, I'm, I hope, I sincerely hope that this is a positive thing because well, I'll use an example. So I use the email client Spark from a company called Readle. And they were right on top of it. And just so you know, full disclosure, Riedel is, uh, found, was founded by Ukrainian uh, nationals. And they just flat out said, you know what? We're done. No more Russian customers, period. They even changed the icon of their mail client to have a Ukrainian flag on the corner, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, and, and you see this, this charge has actually been led by a lot of the smaller startup application type companies, because um, quite honestly, they're like, you know what? We have the ability to say we're not going to do this anymore. Um, they don't have a, you know, a shareholder base that's going to scream at them or, or anything like that. So for these larger companies to quite honestly have moved as fast as they did is heartening. And the fact that they're saying we're going to, you know, donate to Ukrainian relief funds and we're going to 
um, offer all of these other things outside of just saying we're not going to sell any more equipment to these companies. Okay, great. Um, however, kind of going back to that that thing we had, um, if you're going to isolate yourself from the internet, why do you need a router anyway? Um, and if you are going to find yourself in a situation where you can't, um, you know, do any more stuff, then what difference does it make if your internet router is 40 years old, as long as it still powers on? And this yeah. is another issue that we've seen in North Korea quite a bit anyway. Um, you're probably familiar with Red Star Linux, which was their own homegrown developed Linux distribution that they run on all their systems because no one else will support them. And I've even seen calls for like Ukrainians to say, the Ukrainians have been saying, please don't provide any more security patches to people in Russia um, because they don't deserve it or, or something like that, which that's a slippery slope. And, and that, that kind of gets into the point of, are we going to be willing to make the world overall less safe to punish people? And that's a hard line for me personally to take because it, it runs the risk of creating a lot of other problems and, and running in an isolated internet. So just think about it like this, because we've actually seen this over the course of things with the pandemic. When you create these little isolated groups where things are allowed to mutate effectively, then what gets released back into the global population when that community is connected back can be a lot more damaging in the long run. Now, I somewhat ironically, the malware and all the other stuff that we see, it, it has code to check for the fact that it's not running on a Russian computer. Hmm, weird. Uh, but anyway, um, I think what we're going to see is if they do manage to isolate themselves from the internet, that, well, one, it's going to cut down on the amount of bots that have been tweeting at me for random crap. But more importantly, it's going to force a lot of these companies to have to think about step two, which is what happens if Russia decides to pull out of Ukraine? And go back to Ceteris Paribus, where all the other things are being equal. Do you restore the business relationship? Do you choose to continue not to sell to the, to the country? Do you take some other kind of action? It's not an easy question to answer. And I think that that's where we're going to be sooner rather than later. Because the, the, the world of years-long war is done. I mean, yeah. we're already talking about this war in the past tense. And it's been less than three weeks. Like, you know... Oh, is it over? Have they failed? All this other stuff. But from a tech angle, we're, you know, we're revving product every couple of weeks, every month. I mean, they'll fall far behind if they can't get the assets and the resources. But will they care if they're cut off from the global community? That's tough to say. I'll take the optimistic stance that they obviously mean well. And I I hope and I think that their messaging has been more on the we're going to match donations, we're going to we're going to provide humanitarian aid in in ways as opposed to we're not going to do something we couldn't do anyway. I think these are just stating facts by some of these companies, but coming down to the fact where they are involved, making a stand, and not not attempting to just to stay apolitical in an environment where it's impossible to stay apolitical. Yeah. And, and that is that is absolutely true. I mean, one thing that I will say from this being, you know, an observer um, is that this is something that has polarized people and it has by and large polarized them on the side of Ukraine, the the aggrieved party here, if you will. And so to see so many people kind of lining up, um, as one of my friends on Twitter put it the other day, if 45 countries think that you made the wrong decision, um, maybe they're the right people here. Um, but more importantly, you know, this, this has a lot of ramifications for the future, because in the case of a country like North Korea, they have chosen to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. 
So it's very easy to say, well, we can embargo them because they weren't going to buy from us anyway. Mm -hmm. But what happens when the embargo is because of behaviors and it wasn't the intention of them to cut themselves off? And so that, that creates a bigger issue. I mean, let's say that we get into a situation where an ally of Russia with a large economy suddenly decides they're no longer going to buy from U.S. companies anymore. What happens when the U.S. does something and, and countries all over the world say that they're not going to buy from the U.S. anymore? And that's the problem with the political side of tech is that it almost always devolves into a discussion of, okay, you can choose to make these decisions in this particular case, but what happens when the reverse happens? And that's a very difficult thing to think about. Um, hopefully, we won't have to think about that soon or in a perfect world ever again. No, but I think you're right. It's evolving fast, and we're going to see things happening here very, very quickly. Yeah. And the good news is, is that if things do evolve very quickly, you can come back to the rundown every week to learn about all of the things that have been going on. Um, uh, it, there's been a bit of a lull in the news. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And, and quite honestly, I think some companies have kind of maybe held off on on making some announcements given the, the sensitive nature of things going on. But we're starting to see stuff ramp back up a little bit now that we're into March. Um, you know, March, our favorite month of the last two years, because um, it's felt like two long marches. Um, but we will be back with more great news next Wednesday uh, at 12.30 Eastern Time, which is our favorite time to, to bring you all the cool stuff that's going on. Speaking of which, there's a couple of really cool things that you're going to want to check out. Um, right now, as a matter of fact, uh, Storage Field Day is going on in San Jose, California. Um, Stephen Foskett and his uh, merry band of delegates and presenters will be online at techfieldday.com uh, talking more about that. And we also have more great events coming up. Actually, we have more great events every week for the next month. Storage Field Day this week. We have a special exclusive event with Cisco next week. We have Security Field Day the week after that. And just announced, we have a special exclusive event with our friends at Aruba, a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company at Aruba Atmosphere 2022 that will be taking place at the end of March. So if you want to find out more information about that, head over to techfieldday.com. The best thing that you can do is click on the little yellow bar up at the top of the screen. There's a mailing list that you can sign up for. And anytime we add an event to the website or we have something coming up that you want to take part in, we will send you an email and you won't be able to miss it. But if you don't want to miss my co-host this week, Calvin, where can people find out more about the stuff that you're doing? Well, speaking of events, this March, we are doing the fourth annual Python Web Conference, uh, March 21st to 25th. Actually, Gestalt is a media sponsor, so we want to thank you for your support of our event. So go check that out at pythonwebconf.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at CalvinHP. All right. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Networking Nerd. And if you want to uh, follow us on Twitter, we're at Gestalt IT. Um, you can also follow us on your favorite podcast application of choices. If you prefer the dulcet tones of my voice, but maybe not the dulcet look of my face. Um, and uh, if you do, please leave us a rating and a review. Um, people really do read those things, and we would love for them to find out that we are the best enterprise tech news podcast in your feed. Um, but until next week at 1230 Eastern Time, for Calvin, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for our amazing community of Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day, thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you next week.